Matthias Ziegler, thank you so much for being on Flute Unscripted. You're welcome. Nice uh, you to have, be here. Yeah, I mean, you have a very fascinating career, uh, and you are often described as one of the world's most versatile artists. Um, so what was your journey to getting here, to being one of the world's most versatile artists and paving your own unique path, staying true to your voice? Well, you know, if you talk about the career, we very often uh, are looking at it as, as a commercial thing, but basically a career is what you leave behind once you stop doing what you're doing. So, you know, any, anything you do on your way uh, musically or personally is, is part of your career. And um, I was never calculating something like, okay, I've got to do this in order to get there, you know? So it was never, it was much more trying to, uh, to listen inside you know and say what's what what am i what could be a next step for me and there was always something showing up and actually that started very early um i studied architecture well after after school you know so oh, fascinating i started architecture and always played the flute and was actually more and more playing the flute parallel to architecture and actually also starting to study parallel. And after three years, I left architecture behind and went fully into music. But so the moment this was clear, I was uh, ready to go. And yeah, I love that you kind of follow every opportunity that comes up that feels um, interesting to you. And uh, can you talk a little bit more about that, about saying yes to anything that comes your way that feels like a good fit? Yeah. Um, you know, if, if I continue after having changed from architecture, uh, studying architecture into studying music, I felt like this is the place, this is where I'm feeling home. <laughs> and, and I kept going and then I did all the you know, I, I was studying with um, with Andre Jonet in Zurich, with Conrad Clem, also in Switzerland, but then also William Bennett, and also with Jeffrey Gilbert in Florida. And after I finished my soloist exam with uh, William Bennett in the Freiburg in in Breisgau in in Germany, I got a call from Andreas Vollenweider, an uh, electroacoustic harp player whom I knew from Zurich. I mean, I knew him, we actually were once at the same flute teacher when I was still at school, he was older than me. And he called me and said, listen, I'm, I'm recording uh, the Down to the Moon album. Um, I'm looking for a wind player. Would you like to get on that recording and then go on tour with me? And I mean, I didn't even have to to think over or consider something it was for me clear okay let's go let's do that yeah yeah and i knew that I, this was not going was not going to be uh, a thing that i would like to build a career on but i knew that it just fit my way of 
looking at music. I had a very was very open-minded musically. And um and then I did this. And then when I came back, uh it was all together, it took about a year and a half uh, all over the world tour United States um, Canada Europe Japan Australia um, I said okay that's it you know I would like to develop my low flutes uh, because I was already playing a bass flute on that tour and I felt like that's something I'm, I'm fascinated in, in doing it and uh, at the same time, I was playing at the Zurich Chamber Orchestra as a, a, their principal flute player and some other orchestras. So it was always between different worlds. And I felt that, I don't know, it was not, it was enriching. It was something like triggering, something very, maybe you can call it very playful uh, mm -hmm. to develop things. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a kind of playful approach to new challenges. Yeah, and I, I love too that I um, found this little quote of yours where you talk about practicing your instrument is kind of being the perfect metaphor for a career. Um, you said that you set goals and you constantly compare with your personal limits. It's a continuous working progress in developing your personality and getting to know yourself better and better. So yep. um, I guess my question to you would be, How's your practicing evolved over the years? How has your career evolved? Um, my practicing has changed quite a bit because uh, the moment you start teaching, you have a different view on practicing because you all also kind of reflect what you hear your students do. And you are asking what's the best thing for that student to develop. At the same time, you find out about the things you still are not able to do, and you you keep you keep pushing those um, those limits. And probably practicing has my personal practicing has become more essential. I know exactly up to what point I have to practice something that I feel okay. I'm there, you know. Um, and doing this, you refer to earlier stages. For example, um, when you study, you do all the Anderson etudes. Yeah. And each Anderson etude, you know exactly why this etude was, what for this etude was written. And then you go back to an etude, which you have done 30 years ago. <laughs> and you say, oh, yeah, that was the feeling. Yeah. And you try to to rebuild that that perfection, and it's very interesting what's happening uh, uh, when you when you can't when you don't just uh, you know practice scales in front of te of television just doing gymnastics. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah, when you're mindful, yeah. I also uh, want to know a little bit more about um, your relationship with Ava Kingma and. Uh, the two of you and how long you've known each other. Uh, you share a common philosophy uh, that low flutes offer a world of creative possibilities. Um, they're maybe underappreciated. So uh, can you talk a little bit more about her and um, and how you think low flutes can be a little bit more accessible to people? Yeah, well, that's a, 
the last question is is um, that's a big question. It's hard to answer. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but um, you know, there's something in when I collaborate with Eva Kingma, we've we both got the creative concept that we don't believe in things as they are. You know, we take things apart. I mean, she got into flute making by taking a flute apart and and then reassembling it. And I remember me at being a, a I don't know, a 10, a 10 year old boy taking things apart, doing uh, electric uh, curtains in my room, uh, doing electric door handles that people get a electric, electric shock, stuff like this, you know? So it was constantly, um uh, trying to explore uh, new fields by things you do yourself and with Eva, i was just there two weeks ago i mean oh, the right. day started the day started with doing designing something and uh i i made a design of something i would like to do to have and to do and she said okay yes we'll have it by tonight and it's a little a little clam to put on the contrabass flute that I'm able to play the piccolo and the contrabass in one with the rest of the air I blow into the piccolo uh, into the contrabass flute. And uh, so she worked on this, and I took it with me. I took it home with me, and uh, it was just just something new. Uh, we both didn't know that this was going really going to happen, and. Since I collaborate with her, which might be since 1993 or four, when I was interested in buying an alto flute and I met her, that collaboration grew. And then of course, with the Kingma system, it grew. Yeah. Well, it must also be um, really uh, creatively fulfilling to have a partnership like that and a friendship with someone where you can talk about ideas. And then, as you said, they just come to life uh, and pretty quickly too. Yeah. And the amount of energy you get out of such a project, and yeah. it's it's like a creative motor. And of course, if you have a person like her, where you exchange ideas, we've been traveling together, we've been at exhibitions together. She, uh, you know, she came to concerts. Uh, she heard me doing things. We discussed the music. We, it's just uh, on on many levels, we were sharing things and the last big project now was the the Chrolo flute sessions that we are having every summer at her place uh where we have kind of a master class team teaching between Vissam Bustani and Ian Clark and myself that's fantastic yeah oh so that's you know that came out of it and unexpected actually uh, it just was just well, that's how the know. best things happen, right? Unexpectedly, yes. unplanned. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you talk about, uh, I guess, your uh, interest in low flutes and your collection a little bit? I know you were initially drawn to the flute. Um, you loved also that it was small and easily transportable. And then uh, you developed quite a, a, a collection of low flutes that are big and probably uh, kind of a hassle to travel around with. So. What are some of the realities of touring with your flutes and traveling with them? Well, uh, schlepping is a big issue, yes, <laughs> for bass flute players. 
<laughs> it was, you, you, I mean, every, every bass player knows that people come up to him and say, say you'd rather pick up uh, the flute for, you know, and, uh, uh, so I'm, I'm married to a bass player, so I can say, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I you know that eye right. rolls when I complain about having to carry my flute somewhere with my music. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when I, you know, when I, uh, I've been touring a lot with Mark Dresser, the American bass player from San Diego. And when, when he's asked that, he said, you don't know Matthias Siegler. He's slipping much more than what I do. I'm actually traveling with 50 kilos of weight yeah. and um, two big suit, uh, one big suitcase, 25 kilo on my back. Uh, that's here, back here. That's the, the case I'm having uh, where I have the contrabass flute, the bass flute and the alto flute in it. Wow. And that's 14 kilos. And I put this into a huge trekking bag. I uh, put my clothes around and then, uh, um, you know, that goes under. And then I have the, the electronic part in, in another suitcase and then the, old, the cabin luggage, you know, like the very sensitive computer stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. And what do you do when something goes out of adjustment or you need tuning up and you're maybe somewhere remote? or you know on the road and there's not someone readily available yeah that's i mean it can go wrong on many levels you know <laughs> one of them is the electronics uh, i mean i've been soldering soldering equipment uh, the night before the concert wow. uh, and if the flutes go wrong some things i can adjust but Actually, like the the bass flute there, the Hoover, as we call him, mm -hmm. uh, is is kind of complex in the mechanic, and I, I can't do more than just put maybe put a little paper there, a little felt or something. But yeah. if re if really goes wrong, then I have to change program. You know, I remember Australia three years ago. Uh, uh, in, at soundcheck, I kind of got my foot into the cable and uh, the bass flute fell off stage. Oh, no. And was totally damaged. I mean, the lip plate went off and it was like impossible to play. Yeah. That was, that was I mean, that hurt. Uh, but uh, then I played the whole program on the contrabass flute and just changed pieces. You know, sure. what, what can you do? <laughs> but it's, it's kind of... Uh, uh, that was one of the reasons why I went now to uh, Eva Kingma. I have some important concerts coming up, and uh, I just wanted the, the, the tools to be okay. Yeah. So well, and you have a lot of these uh, modern little flutes, and then to throw into the mix, you have a Louis Lot from you know, around the yeah. 1880s. Uh, why the Louis Lot? I know you've maybe toured around with a couple of different head joints on it, but have you ever thought of? getting a more modern concert flute? Um, well, if I would find a flute that would sound better in my ears, you know, that I might, I might buy it. <laughs> no, I don't buy any more flutes, but um, it's the Louis Lot. I don't know, there was, of course, the whole story with uh, William Bennett, and I had a chance to yeah. buy a very beautiful Louis Lot. 
and I'm actually playing it with a Miguel Arista headshot. Right. And that kind of gives a, the total Louis Lott character, but it kind of puts it on a bigger scale. Yeah. And what I have is a Brennan Kingmas system flute. That's a modern flute. And uh, there, with that flute, I, with um, a Kingma system, I can, I can feel what, what it lo- would sound like to have a flute like, uh, like this uh, Brennan, uh, like a, a modern flute. And I still think that flute making goes into a direction that you want to have a bigger sound, but many flutes have more fundamental, a bigger, a louder fundamental note, but they have a lack of harmonics. Mm. And if you then, and also of harmonics, which which are slightly off the scale, which add some color, which help to the sound to carry, and that's actually my sound concept, you know, yeah. to have all the, the harm, uh, harmonics ringing. And um, it's for me has been an interesting journey uh, because because that concept became, became more and more clear through the years. So I never felt like I need a, a more modern flute. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the, the Louis Lot suits you. It's your match. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yes. So, uh, uh, and you amplify all of your flutes. Um, you put a lot of thought into that and into, into your staging and presentation. Um, and you were telling me a little bit at the beginning here about this, this space behind you. Um, so what factors do you take into consideration when staging a concert? And do you think some venues uh, lend themselves to your performances a little bit better than others? Yes, that's definitely true. You know, uh, uh, one thing is the size, the, maybe the first thing is the size of the stage. Uh, if I'm playing a flute solo program, uh, it doesn't make sense to play it at Radio City Music Hall, right. as we played with Andreas Vollenweider, because, uh, you know, there you have a, a band on, we were as a band on stage, and it's huge. And you get that sound, but nobody looks at the details you're doing on stage. And with my uh, concerts, uh, the audience still sees me doing things like kicking the, uh, you know, doing key clicks and uh, Mm -hmm. blowing from distance and maybe singing into the flute, all that stuff that would just come over in a bigger hall, like like uh, just a normal normal sound, maybe electronic sound. Uh, on a smaller scale, uh, people enjoy this much more. So for me, a hall up to three hundred people is a perfect size for my flutes for solo programs. And then for the flute concertos, I have this one flute concerto by. Benjamin Yusupov from uh, Tajikistan. Um, there I'm a soloist with the orchestra. So there I need bigger amplification behind the orchestra and it has to match the size of the theater. So there I'm playing theater, maybe two and a half thousand like traditional concert halls. Uh, it needs a different kind of amplification. Yeah. 
And I know uh, this kind of goes hand in hand with that. And I know it, this is another big question and a loaded question, but um, can you talk a little bit more about balancing the technical aspect of your performances, um, the yeah. technology uh, as well with the artistic aspects? Yes, I mean, it goes, it kind of goes the same direction. I feel like if people can still somehow follow what I'm doing, it's just uh, more magic in what I'm doing. And uh, um, I'm trying not to use electronic equipment in the sense of a, a octaver or flanger or harmonizer, stuff like this. I'm doing all all the effects myself, uh, all the effects I'm doing are playing techniques. So what I'm doing is pure amplification of the flute. Because if I would, as soon as you add some of the other stuff, people don't believe anymore what you are doing. So I'm kind of uh, still a natural product, you know, when yeah. I'm presenting. And I think that's very important. I mean, that's my, if I'm working in a studio, it's different. I do, I, I mean, nobody knows how I'm doing my wind sounds, if I add some voice to it, but on stage, I want, I want that one-to-one -one, um, uh, situation that people Yeah, I feel like you, uh, your performances wow the listener because everything you're doing is human. It's just one person doing it, but you're creating such a range of effects. Yes, I'm very yeah. much convinced that it should be that way. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, we have enough, there are enough of, of we have enough of the other stuff. <laughs> so. uh, and speaking of you doing this stuff a lot on your own, um, I know you do love collaboration as well. Is there an artist or a kind of dream collaboration in your mind uh, that you would love to put together in the future, something that hasn't happened yet? Well, <laughs> actually, sometimes it's more continuing the, the work collaborations I had, like with, with Mark Dresser, we went into the telematic concerts where we play over internet, which was very interesting, which has become a research project in, here in Zurich. I would very much like to continue this. Um, then I, I just had the Arditi Quartet visiting here. Uh, but for me, a dream would be to play the piece I commissioned with Mark Dresser. It's called The Banquet, uh, which, we, which we released on, on, on Tzadik by John Zorn in New York. Uh, to play this with the Arditi Quartet. I mean, that, that might be like an uh, incredible coincidence of different energies, because I just love the work they are doing since years. Well, great. That's all that I have today. Thank you so much for joining well, me. thank you. For sitting down. Beautiful. Thanks for inviting me to that series. And uh, uh, I think we've covered quite a few. <laughs> Yeah, we covered a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs>